The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Game On! Business Talk Radio with your host, Dr. D. Anthony Miles. Our program is not afraid to discuss the more controversial business ideas and topics. Get ready for an unfiltered discussion of problems and solutions that today's businesses, large or small, face daily. Now, here is Dr. D. Anthony Miles. Hello, good morning. This is a Game On Business Talk with DeAnthony Miles. We have an awesome show for you today. We have a guest on, and uh, we're doing our first show on a uh, author showcase. The uh, author showcase, we uh, we interview different uh, authors of books and uh, books that are cutting edge and books that are you know that are going to pique the audience interest. So today we have uh, Dr. Martin Diop. He's author of Inner City Public Schools Still Work. Let me give you a quick background on Dr. Diop. Uh, Dr. Dip is author of Inner City Public Schools Still Work, his latest book. He's an educator, author, magazine publisher, and he's also founder and publisher of All Things Educational Magazine. He is currently a professor of education at the University of the Incarnate Word and a director of instructional technology at San Antonio Independent School District. His uh, education credentials are awesome. Dr. Diop has a uh, doctorate in educational leadership and instructional technology from the uh, Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Also, he has an MS in Education Administration from Texas A&M University, Kingsville as well. And he has a BS in History from the University Incarnate Word. He has an extensive experience background. He's also a former principal. He served in the uh, United States Air Force for six years. He has traveled extensively throughout Europe and also received several medals of honor as a member of the Armed Forces. He has over 20 years of experience in the education sector, and Dr. Diop has written two books, and we're going to talk to him about his first book, to, I mean his second book. His book, Inner City Public Schools Still Work, is a riveting piece of work. So I want to welcome to our show Dr. Martin Diop. How are you doing, Dr. Diop? Dr. Miles, how are you, sir? All right. I'm, you still recovering from that uh, game last night? <laughs> hey, man. Popovich is the uh, he's the, he's the pen- ultimate leader on the basketball in the basketball arena, man. I love Popovich. Leave my furs alone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't want you to get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, it was a well, good, it was a good game up until the second quarter. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was a uh, that was a piece of work. I was not expecting that. I was I not expecting that. I wasn't either. You're right. Well, <laughs> Goodness. Well, I want to ask you about your book. Uh, I actually made my daughters read your book, and I read it as well. Uh, inner city, inner city public schools still work. Uh, why don't you tell the audience what your book is generally about? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, Doctor Miles. Uh, you know, Thank really you. appreciate the support and everything you're doing in, 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 in the business world and even in the education world and the, uh, in the, in the in the at the college level what you're doing. So. Uh, well, thank my you. Book, man, it, it, it came as a result of you know my 17 years at the time, 17 years of experience as an educator, just seeing everything that we were doing. We meaning educators, we were doing with, with children that you would consider uh, hard to teach, to say to put it mildly. We were dealing with children that you know a lot of people just didn't want to deal with. And so, but we were also being blamed for uh, the failure of public schools, in particular in the city public schools. So I always had this thought. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm. I'm in the schools every single day. I see our children. I see our teachers. I see our parents. I know we're doing some good things, and I just believe that story needed to be told. And I didn't see anybody telling the story from our point of view. So that's where the book really came from. Um, so I was a principal at the time, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to take some time off and, and, and write this book, and that's exactly what I did. I took a few months off of work, a leave of absence, and, and just wrote the book. And that's the one you have in your hand. Uh, I think your book is awesome. I think it should be required reading for uh, teachers and principals. And what's interesting about your book is we've been knowing each other for a while. I think since, uh, what, junior high school? Junior high school. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 
Goodness. And when I was uh, reading your book, because I, you know, wanted to prepare for the interview to ask some questions, I had no idea that you had such a spectrum of experiences that happened to you. And I think one of the things that I found fascinating is the uh, college recruitment thing when you're in sports, because I was an mm-hmm. athlete such as you. And, I, you know, I didn't I did not know that you had those experiences with eligibility. And um, I love the story about you driving to I forgot what university that was uh, where you're, you had Texas a hoopty. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I was in East Texas. I was in Commerce, Texas. <laughs> lordy, lordy, lordy. But, oh, um, man, that was, that was wild. <laughs> But, you know, it's those experiences that make, you know, that build your character. And I mm-hmm. and I, I felt that when I was reading your story, I felt like that was my story. Because, right. you know, like I said, we knew each other. But it's, it's really uh, fascinating that you may know somebody all your life, but you really don't know the background story of their, of their script to their life. Right. I, right. I, it was really, really touching some of the things that you put in your book. Like uh, one of the things that I that really got captured my attention was the Alamo Heights experience. I forget what chapter that was. It mm-hmm. looks like looks like your editor uh, probably edited some of it out because it looked like you didn't really want to say what you wanted to say. Am I am I hitting that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I could have I could have written a whole book just on the Alamo Heights experience. Uh, going back to that, and that's in part one of the book. The book is a two part book. Part one is really my life, and part two uh-huh. is my life as an educator. But I think the two are intertwined because. Everything that I experienced as a as a young man growing up, you know, all the trials and tribulations I went through, prepared me because to become a school leader. So when uh, when when students would come at me or being in trouble or whatever the case may be, especially when they were black males and even Hispanics, I could still I could look at them and see me, and I said, "This is the, these are the same things that I did." So I know that we can grow from this. So I'm not I'm not so apt to want to just throw a child out because they got into a fight or they did something. What we might consider horrendous. So that's what that's really where that came from. And all those experiences I had at Alamo Heights uh, as a as a middle school student, the racism I had to endure, and you know all the stuff that I wrote about. There was no one there for me to talk to. There was there were no teachers that were that, that took me by the hand. None of that. I was always alone, and I always to this very day say it was God and God alone that basically just held my hand and walked me through all of this stuff. I mean, no parents, no nothing. It was always just me and the, and the God that created me. And that's it. That's all I. That, that's all I had. So that's how I got through that stuff, man. And I look back on it now, going, man, I would never want another child to have to endure that those kinds of things. And we know about it. You know what I mean? We Absolutely. know about it as adults. You know, so that's why that's where that came from. I was going to ask you, uh, uh, when you went to Alamo Heights, was that an everyday occurrence? Some of the things that you described in that chapter, I believe that's chapter. Uh, was it chapter three that you talked three. about those experiences? Is that right? That was it was pretty much every day. It was almost it was almost daily, man. I'm to this, I mean, I can still sit back now and think about it. When I drive, when I drive through Alamo Heights now, when I drive through those the streets that I talked about and how how was I was run over by the car. When I when I drive through there right now, I can still vividly picture everything that happened. I mean, it was almost daily. I walked to school, walk into the classroom, and if it wasn't something from a teacher, it was something from a student. So I always felt I was on edge. I always felt, okay, a fight is going to break out any minute because if somebody else says something crazy to me, then, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I was always, I was always uh, trying to plan my reaction. Even if nothing happened, I had, I had a plan for what I was going to do. So, I mean, you know, that, that was, a pretty, uh, it, it was a pretty tough experience for a 13-year-old to have to endure. I, I could imagine. And, I, and also, when you, when you talk about that chapter, also what, what, what was really, really riveting to me was the uh, – the teachers and also the students. You know, so you had a two prong attack, right. you know, dealing with the teachers because I remember something I read the Marva Collins and I love the quotes that you have in the book. She mm-hmm. says you can't teach a student unless you love a student. You agree with right. that? Absolutely. I mean, that's the. I was talking to some teachers the other day, uh, doing some uh, just kind of getting some research for a new piece that I'm working on. Uh, these inner city teachers they did extremely well on their state assessments. And I wanted to kind of just, oh, what did y'all do that, you know, I asked them what did they what they did to be successful. But the first thing they said was, we just, we care about our students. That was the first thing they said. We care about our students. So if you, if you don't care for your, for your children, how could you possibly teach them if you don't care about them? So, I mean, I, imagine I'm going to, you know, in that, in that, during that day, I'm going to Alamo Heights and all that kind of, I mean, you don't do nobody cared about me, you know, but still, I'm still in the classroom, and, you know, even though the teachers aren't being overt about the things they were doing, 
if I went to them with a problem because another student did something to me and I went to the teacher for for help, then there was no help coming. So at that point, that's when you begin to feel alone. I totally agree with you. And I also share this with my daughters. You know, we have to understand this generation of students are a lot more advanced than we were. We were in a, going to school in the 70s. Oh, we're revealing our age, huh? <laughs> exactly. No, that's all right. I forget because I think you graduated. I graduated high school in 95, and you graduated what? No, oh, you need to quit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you can about 10 years off. <laughs> now, let me put your business out there. <laughs> no, nah, you're right. You're right. You're right. We're 80s guys, man. We're 80s yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I and I remember, I remember. I think you were talking to me about this one time. You should never underestimate the intelligence of a child because never. children know when you don't care for them. They know mm-hmm. when you don't when you're just showing up for the job. And and you know, Doctor Martin, you can speak on, speak on this a lot better than I can. Do you think sometimes the education field? Is for people that, that that could make a career somewhere else, so they go into the education field as backup, and it's really not their passion. What right. do you think and about it, and that? It shows, and it shows as soon as they walk into as soon as they walk into the interview as a principal. I mean, I really and I, I'm the we call them alternative certified teachers. They're mm-hmm. uh, they're uh, they were working at the bank and they got laid off, and then they said they want to come and, and become teachers. I'm like, no, nah, that that just it might work one out of a hundred times, maybe. I know when I left the military and kind of a side point, I think when you leave the military, those people that leave the military and go into the classroom, they're some of your better teachers. I mean, they're great teachers, the ones that leave the military and come. I don't know what it is about the service, but when they leave the service, it's been my experience. They come in and they're awesome teachers. I mean, but that's a side note. But uh, with these alternative certified teachers, when they come in and I say, well, why do you want to be a teacher? And, you know, well, the bank was laying off and all that. And immediately, I know that, okay, well, you may have the certification and you may have the the, the talent, and you may have the, you want to do this, but as soon as you walk into that classroom and I put 22, 23 kids in front of you, time will tell. And normally it's in the first day of teaching that these teachers realize, oh, maybe this isn't for me. It's not as easy as I thought it was because you, I have a chapter in my book called Teaching is Rocket Science, and, and it is. It's, it's rocket science. You have to go ahead and figure out you have 25 children in your classroom, all of them uh, living below the poverty line, and all of them have varying needs. And you have to meet each and every one of those needs every single day. How do you do it? And that's where the, that's where the rocket science comes in. And 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 you can pretty much, I guess, in the interviews, you can pretty much, uh, you're, since you've been in the field for the number of years, you can you can smell, you know, whether somebody's a good fit or not. Because it may not be about credentials. It may it may, it may be more about uh, organizational fit or organizational. Uh, 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 affiliation, like a uh, lot of lot of these people, and I and I and I've seen you seen you discuss this, especially at one of the book signings. Well, you know, putting putting all of this uh, emphasis on charter schools and public schools are the wasteland. And I I think you did a, a, a admirable job in one of the chapters saying what the differences are, and a lot of people are miseducated about the charter school system. And right. you have a hotbed of talent. Uh, I mean, of of intellectual capital at the public schools, but you never know that because you know public schools have such a uh, a bad stigma attached to them. And mm-hmm. you know, I find that interesting because I came out of a public school, and you mm-hmm. came out of public school, and we both have doctorates. Absolutely. If you'd have told me, if you'd have told me, if I was in uh, junior high school, and I was going to get a doctorate, I would have started laughing. Exactly. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> We'd still be laughing. Playing basketball at the back of Jeff Davis Middle School, we'd be laughing at each uh-huh. other. You're right. Because, <laughs> yeah, some, some of the guys that we went to school with, uh, they're not doing too well right now. Uh, exactly. One of them I saw in the newspaper, he was trying to rob a uh, a liquor store or a, a, a establishment. And, and that's why it's critical that we have, you know, a lot of black males in the mm-hmm. public school system. Because if you don't see anybody that looks like you, it's hard for you to relate to people. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's funny to me how, like, uh, organizations like, let's say, Teach for America, you know, they go, their their mission is to go and go to these Ivy League schools and, and choose these um, these graduates and have them come teaching some of the worst, I ain't going to say worst, but have them come see, teaching some of the toughest situations they could possibly be in. And I always wonder, like, why don't you go recruit? If it were me, I'm recruiting at Morehouse. I'm recruiting at recruiting at Howard. Uh, most of the HBCUs, I'm going to recruit at those schools. I'm going after 
black men because that's one thing that is, like you said, fully lacking in our schools. We don't have any men, black, white, or otherwise. But in particular, we need black men in, in schools where there are predominantly black children. You have to have black men around, and that's what we don't have. We have black coaches, and those mm-hmm. coaches, they know how to manage a classroom. They know how to manage uh, a, a gymnasium, a football field, whatever. But we need them to go in and manage schools. We need to go in there and, go in there and manage classrooms. And that's what—that's the shortage. We need to actually go out and recruit them, actively recruit them while they're in their freshman, sophomore year of, of college. And say, we want you to come out and we want you to be a teacher in our nation's public schools. And I think we need to do a better job of that. Absolutely. And I and I and because I'm so so admire I so admire your work. I actually looked at your uh, doctoral work, and I really love the dissertation topic that you did. Uh, I believe it was on sing, single gender schools. And, you know, you basically basically broke everything down and said that, you know, single gender schools may be the future to say public schools. Is that right? Pretty much. Absolutely. I mean, when I was a classroom teacher and I wrote about this, I remember the chapter when I described when I was describing my, to my students how this my classroom was going to work. Uh, boys, you're on this side of the equator. Girls, you're on this other side of the equator. And, and you should never have to cross paths. I mean, separating the genders is just natural. And I don't under, I don't even understand the furor over why uh, these uh, uh, opponents are so against single-gender schools. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't get it. When I was in the military, when we got off that bus uh, at, at Lackland Air Force Base, we were assigned to male dormitories. The females were assigned to female dormitories. You have a girl's bathroom, a boy's bathroom. You have a female this, a male that. So I don't understand why you think that when these kids come into a classroom that they're going to turn off their, their innate, their natural differences. Boys think differently than girls. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just different. And Absolutely. they have educated differently. So I don't understand the problem with putting them in the classroom. When I wrote my dissertation on single gender schools, like, I mean, my highest, my, my girls' class, Dr. Miles, my girls' class was just awesome. I mean, they were just some of the greatest girls. And my only criteria to be in that class was you had to be a girl. That was it. That's the criteria. My boys' class, you have to be a boy. I don't care nothing about your attendance, anything, just be a boy. And at that time, you had to be a boy on my campus. And those are my highest performing classrooms the single-gender classroom. So to me, that's the answer for, that's one of the answers for inner-city schools is we need more single-gender schools. That's one of my answers, one of my solutions. Well, why why do you think that the uh, public school system has been a little bit resistant to going with a single-gender model as opposed to the way they have it now? Because I totally get that. I just think yeah. boys act different in the presence of girls than they act in the presence of men. Because I remember something we had talked about a while back. You said you don't entertain boys. You, you, you know, you train boys. Boys That's have to true. have structure. Mm-hmm. You boys, you don't like to see a boy not being focused and being, you know, and playing in class. Because exactly. it's like when, when, and I, both of us play sports, and I know you know this metaphor. You know, when you got to, I play football, and I believe you said in your book you play football as well. And some of the things that I've carried with me throughout my life have been some of the things of coaches that have taught me playing sports and football. And, uh, you know, obviously everybody's not an athlete, and you can only take so much of that and integrate it into the classroom. But I just know when I see men in classrooms, you don't see boys acting crazy because they're not going to challenge a grown man. Is that right? Exactly. When you have a man who's strong, a strong teacher as a male in your, in your classroom, like and like you said, the boys, they act differently when girls are around. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just different. If I'm sitting in a classroom <clears throat> talking to some boys and two girls walk in, their whole demeanor is going to change because now, and it's natural. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's just natural. If you put a man and a woman together long enough, something's going to happen. It's just a natural instinct. Hey, Dr. Martin, hold that thought. We got to take our first break, but we want to get right back on that. This is a Game On Business Talk with uh, DeAnthony Miles, and we'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network how can we americans realize our dreams to earn a living how can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee learn how at the american business person the online weekly radio talk show hosted by rich killian 
Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. You are tuned in to Game On Business Talk Radio with Dr. D. Anthony Miles. If you have a question or comment on today's program for Dr. Miles or his guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to GameOnTalkRadio at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back. This is Game On Business Talk with DeAnthony Miles, and our guest today is Dr. Martin Diop. We're talking about his books, uh, Public Schools Still Work. And I want you to continue on that thought we were talking about on the uh, when you notice that when you have a single gender environment with males, and how how is it different than a mixed environment? P- please. Uh, I mean, I, I remember when I was a, when I was a campus principal. One day we were out. I was fifth grade students. We were out. It was their they were their their uh, break time. It was on, on the playground. And so they had finished eating lunch, and I was walking around the campus, and I just said, I, I told the uh, the instructors that day, I said, you know what, I, I'll take fifth grade. So I walked them out to the playground, and I said, okay, you know, go and basically blow off steam. So I just, I'm sitting there watching them, and, and this is natural. Nobody told them to do this. They just did whatever. The boys automatically organized themselves into a football game. That's what they did. Let's play football. <laughs> the girls automatically organized themselves. Some of them just walked around talking. Some of them went to the monkey bar. Some of them went to the swing. But not a, none of them wanted to go play football with the boys. They naturally did this, and they played for about 20, 25 minutes, and it was funny because I'm thinking to myself, see, these innate differences the boys have. They want to compete against each other, and they take it real serious. They want, mm-hmm. I got you, I got you, you know how we used to do. Mm-hmm. What makes us think that when these children, when they're done, okay, we blow the whistle, let's go back into the classroom, what makes you think that when these innate differences manifest themselves on the playground, what makes you think that they're, not, they're going to turn those differences off when they walk into the classroom? Okay, now I'm no longer a boy. That same competitiveness they had on that playground, they have the same competitiveness in the classroom. Wherever they go, they want to compete. Now, we just have to, as educators, we have to be able to take that, that competitive nature or those, those, those natural differences and somehow incorporate those into our classrooms. And that's what a single-gender environment will uh, allow you to do. I'll make one more point on that. Um, for example, with boys, and this is research-proven, Boys, a lot of boys, they don't want to sit in a traditional chair. They have to sit in the stool in stools that are a little bit higher because they don't want to mm-hmm. sit down. Some boys like to, you know how they sit on their elbows and write like that. They don't necessarily sit down. Well, in a single gym, in a co-ed classroom, they'll get in trouble for that. The teacher, will, he won't sit down, so I'm sitting to the office. I mean, he won't, he won't sit down. He keeps standing up writing. I'm like, so let him stand up and write. I mean, what's the problem? But if you have a classroom with nothing but boys, then you can teach to those to those differences. You know. So, uh-huh. that, I mean, that's just what I, one of the things that I, I've learned many things over the years. But that's one of the things that I found interesting. That is totally awesome. I was also going to ask you this, piggybacking on that as well. Do you think that um, African-American, excuse me, African-American boys have trouble with, a, say, a white female teacher because she doesn't relate to their experiences and it causes them to be disruptive? And I could imagine if that was a single gender environment. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, when you have a teacher that really doesn't understand the culture that he or she is teaching in, so let's say you you have a, 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 an Anglo teacher teaching in a, in a classroom with nothing but black students, male or female, but nothing but black mm-hmm. students. If that Anglo teacher does not take the time to understand the culture that she or he is teaching in, you're going to have problems. Now, I'm not saying that they can't be successful because they, they, they probably can, but I know you yeah, and I grew up, for example, when I left Alamo Heights, when I just ran away, I, I wrote about it, when I left Alamo Heights, and ended up going back to my neighborhood, I felt so much more comfortable 
because of the day. Now I'm around people who know me, people who care. I mean, it just, I didn't walk in and say, okay, somebody make me feel comfortable. I just walked in, and as soon as I met the lady in the front desk, I automatically felt comfortable. And that's the same thing a teacher has to do. What, no matter your color of your skin, but if you're, if you're uh, an Anglo teacher and you have black children from the hood, from the, uh, from the inner city, you have to understand the culture that you're teaching in. You have to understand the language that they speak. You have to understand the body language. You have to understand that they, because they talk loud doesn't mean that they're being disrespectful to you. That's just how they talk at home. And you have to understand, why are you so loud? You have to understand, you have to teach them basically uh, uh, behavior for society at large, if, if you would. They have to be taught that. And if you don't understand that, if you don't basically take that and, 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 and really nurture it and show them that you care, you're going to have problems with them. Oh, I totally agree with you. And, and it, I think that also has some uh, relevance to the higher education uh, system because many times I've, I've, I went to, you know, predominantly white school. And I remember a lot of times I was the only African-American in my class. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously some teachers are not used to or professors not used to seeing, well, that we talk in the 80s or 70s back then, you know, I'm still younger than you, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are, actually. Yeah, I got you by a couple of years. It's all good, oh, though. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you've probably had similar experiences going to, was it Texas A&M Commerce? Is that where you went? I went there, and I had, and it's funny, I had, the experiences I had in Commerce were, um, I, was in a, I, was, I was much older then, and I just, mm-hmm. I don't know, man, was, when I was going to school up there, I, it's, it's almost seems like a blur because I was so broke. I mean, sleeping in my car, oh. and you know, it was just oh, it was a different experience. Oh man! You but talk about that about, a lot in your book. Those experiences, oh, that was huge, man. I'm I just could, just I could feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> remember back in, back when you were in college, you lived in a dorm. You know, uh-huh. your last meal was Friday night dinner, and then on Saturday they didn't feed you breakfast uh, in my school. They didn't, you didn't get breakfast. They only had what they called brunch. So uh-huh. on Saturday, I would eat brunch around noon, and I wouldn't eat again until Sunday, uh, which oh, again would be a brunch. And I was like, I was like that all year, man. I think I weighed 140 pounds. <laughs> I was so skinny. You really lost that muscle mass. Huh? Oh man, I'm telling you, it was gold. But I, I just didn't have any money, and I didn't have. I, it, I was just broke. So my time in in, in commerce was more of. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to t- trying to live while I'm up here, and you know. So I, I wrote about my my roommate at the time who was filthy rich. And his dad uh-huh. took care of me when I was there, and uh, you know. But if man, at that time, just being that broke, <laughs> you know what? So talented Tim has has a, has has to establish scholarships. <laughs> well, absolutely, and I and also I think that um, those experiences shape your character because mm-hmm. I remember being broke and eating half to eating bagels while I was going to mm-hmm. I was uh, I attended UTSA, and mm-hmm. you know I didn't have a lot of money. I was paid by tuition, and you know I wasn't. Uh, to get the athlete that you were, I didn't get a basketball scholarship. I had to, <laughs> I had to go out there and make it happen. But the thing about those days that when we struggled, it seems like you're more. I think you're a better person because it built your character. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't learn how to study in college until what I was a, almost a senior. Yeah, you and, and me both. A lot of those things, you know, I remember I didn't have a computer, and I'm having to do computer work at the school, and I'm in. These kids, they just have it so different now that everybody pretty much has a laptop at home. But mm-hmm. me and you, we had to go out there and make it happen. Because I, I didn't know if you had a computer at home. I sure didn't. Oh, man. I, <laughs> computer? Please. I didn't have nothing. I didn't have, I didn't have bro, I didn't even do homework. That's how my mind wasn't even in college. I was there. I was playing ball. But I didn't do homework. I didn't, I didn't even think I had a composition book. Uh, I wasn't doing any of that. I, I, I don't think I wrote about this. But when I was in Incarnate Word, I was, uh, this was right before I joined the military. Man, I was struggling so bad. I remember being in the car at work, and I was in class one day, and the professor said, turn to page nine or whatever. I was in the back of the classroom, and every time the professor said, turn to a page, you would hear my chair in the back going, it's good. And I was moving over, <laughs> share books with somebody. <laughs> Never afford books, man. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, how you can you go to and, no and live like that? Uh, exactly. <laughs> You, you remember that? There was a movie, um, The Five Heartbeats. You remember that movie, The Five Heartbeats? Yes, uh, absolutely. There was, a, there was a scene, Robert Townsend was in that movie. There was a scene at the end when Robert Townsend and The Five Heartbeats were accepting an award. And Robert Townsend was a music writer in that movie, and he, he, he made a statement in that movie. He said, 
He said, you know, I was talking to a songwriter one day, and he told me, me and Robert Townsend, Robert Townsend said, he told me that you'll become a better songwriter when you suffered more. And he said, Robert Townsend said, I don't understand that when he, when he told me that until now. He was going through something in the movie until now. And I think that's what, what with you and I and, and, and brothers that are like us, it's our suffering that really got us to where we are now. We didn't succumb to it. We didn't use it as a pity party. We didn't yes. start doing, committing crimes with it. We used uh-huh. it to propel us because we knew there had to be something better. Because we were Absolutely. college students just like us who had more than what we had. We said, well, how do we get what they have? And the only, only way we get it is we study. We keep studying. We keep achieving. And that's kind of how we are now. It was many nights, man. I got broke down because uh, I didn't know if I was going to make it. <laughs> it was many nights. I was like, I didn't know I was going to pay my tuition. Yep. I didn't know how I was going to, you know, make, you know, pay these bills and pay my tuition. But it's that's a, such a prophetic statement in that movie because suffering brings brings out humility in you and that's what i give get get from your book you 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 share your humble experiences you know from college to the military Mm -hmm. and and i you you can't you couldn't buy those experiences you you just couldn't buy them right i I, I love this day yeah and i also i love the chapter where you uh write about your sister that actually touched me personally where you talked about the letter to your sister is it Mavis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, apology to my sister. Yeah, she uh, and Mavis is uh, she's doing well now, man. And all the stuff that we that she endured as a, as a child, and me being younger than her, I didn't understand at the time. Of course, I didn't understand what was going on, and she was trying to tell me, but I didn't understand it. All I knew is, okay, yeah, this is my room, and don't come in here. That's all I knew. And um, you know, years later, of course, coming to find out what was really going on, uh, mm-hmm. that that led to that title of that book, An Apology to My Sister. And so she's, uh, I mean, now she's doing well. She's, uh, she's actually an ordained minister now. She lives in Florida, and she has her own ministry, and she's doing that things. That's fantastic. That's the kind of stuff that, as a principal, I can see a child uh, going through, let's say, you know, this year this child is doing extremely well, and then the very next year there's a drop-off in grades. There's a drop-off in behavior. Well, nobody, nobody checked my sister at school to say, hey, what's going on with you? One year you're really good, next year you're really bad. Nobody checked her, and I think her experiences allowed me to look at students now and go, wait a minute, just last year this student was doing well. What happened? And just by asking that, that question. Dr. Dr. Dib, uh, I have to ask you, do you think that's lacking in some of the uh, schools? You know, because I, I know you know this for a fact because you're, you're in the jungle every day. You just mm-hmm. think they just some of these uh, teachers just show up for a job and it's a job to them and it's not a it's not a calling. Not a Is calling, what... yeah, yeah, and that's that's the, that's the problem. Like you said, it began at the beginning of, the, of this interview. They just don't care, and that's the problem. Because when you don't care, a child can come into your classroom and throw a tantrum and do whatever they're doing. And all you want to do is get that child out of your classroom. That's all you care about is getting the child. You don't really care about getting to the bottom of that of why that child is acting the way they're acting. Send them to the principal. Send them to the counselor. Just get them out of here. And that's the beginning of non-caring. It's like all you have to do is take some time and talk to the child. Ask them, what's the matter? What's going on? Or at least put the child in the hands of somebody who can, uh, in the counselor or whatever. When you send the child to, the, to me as a principal, I know the teachers will get frustrated with me because I would ask those questions to the child. What's going on? Something, something happened. I will call the parent and go, what's going on? Because I see my sister or I see oh, me. That, that's remarkable. That is totally you know I mean? remarkable. Oh, absolutely. So and, you have to, and you have to care about them to, to ask those questions. If you don't, then you're just there getting a paycheck, and the, and, and the children are going to make your life a living hell. Uh, so if, if, if you don't care, they're going to sniff you out on day one, and they'll run you out of their classroom. And that's good. I think that's a good thing because it saves me the trouble having to run you out. <laughs> you need to stop. That's not very nice. <laughs> I want to ask you in your book, and I really like chapter uh, chapter six uh, concerning the section on Doctor Boyd. Can you get into that a little bit? I that really resonated with me. That that uh that section that you had in chapter six. Mm-hmm. As a as a, as a professor, I know you can relate to that because when I went to UTSA at this time, I was the University of Texas at San Antonio, but I was a different student. I had already read. At this point, I was a serious student. I knew what I was doing at this point. So when I was in Dr. Boyd's class, I was I, at that point, I was used to getting nothing but A's because I was studying right. all the time. So when I, uh, he, he had us do an assignment. It was right about some aspect of history, and I chose the Dred Scott decision. So I said, okay. So he gave me that, and I wrote him a three-, four-page paper on the Dred Scott decision, turned it in, and he gave me the paper back, and it was a D. He gave me a D on the paper. I said, a D? And I was going to ask him, what are you talking about? How do I get a D on this? And he said, yeah, you had this wrong, that wrong. I said, yeah, but 
the fact just came out of the book that you assigned to us. I didn't make anything up. He said, well, I'll let you write it again. I said, okay. So I rewrote it. I mean, I changed everything. I did everything I was supposed to do, I thought. Turned in again, and he gave me another D. And I said, okay. So I went to him, and uh, I was getting ready to student teach at the time, and he was department chair, and I asked him if he would sign off for me to go student teach. And he said, uh, no, I can't do that. I said, why? And he said, I don't think you have what it takes to become a teacher. That's what he told me. Not the professor boy. I'll never get him. He said, you uh, don't have what it takes to become a teacher. And I said, you don't even know me. I mean, how, do you, how can you tell me that? And he just said, I just don't think you can. And I got my papers. I got up, walked out. He ended up giving me a D in that class. But I found another professor who, uh, who would sign off on me. And she signed off on it. And the rest of history, I went on to become a teacher. And, all, all, and I've never seen him since then. But I wanted to tell him. If you're listening to this, man, it's like you never tell a student what they can't do. Never. Because if you're like me, I'm going to live my whole life just trying to prove you wrong. So whether that's what? a good or bad way to be, that's just how I was. Why do you think uh, that happened to you? Because, you know, I, I know both of us know this. Sometimes it's not about the grade. It's about the personal, uh, what they think of you as a person and their, how they place a value judgment on you. What do you think contributed to that that happened to you? Man, I, I, straight up, I was a black guy in a, in a predominantly white university talking to a white professor. That's basically what it, what it was because he didn't know me from Adam. I was the only black student in the class, black male in the class. There was a, a, a black female in there as well, uh, and that that was the only thing. I know I, I know I I'm, I'm thinking back to what did my team do wrong? How could I have changed that situation? I think about I was in class every day. I sat in the front of the classroom. I read all the material. I got the highest grades in the classroom. He we would he would give tests. And we would take the test, and he, and he would turn, uh, return the test, and everybody around me would ask how I got the highest grade. It was funny. Oh, you must you must be smart. It was so funny to me. I'm like, I just studied. Like, I mean, I studied. That's all. I got the hey, highest Dr. grade. Hey, Dr. Martin, hold that mm-hmm. thought. I have to hear this. Well, we get ready to go to our uh, second break. Uh, this is a Game on Business Talk with DeAnthony Miles. We'll be right back. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G. and Jenny Frumer? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G. and Jenny Frumer airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Game On Business Talk Radio with Dr. D. Anthony Miles. If you have a question or comment on today's program for Dr. Miles or his guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to GameOnTalkRadio at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back. This is a Game On Business Talk with DeAnthony Miles, and we have our uh, author today, Dr. Martin Diop, 
author of Inner City Public Schools, still working. Dr. Dib, uh, we're talking about the the experience that you had with a uh, professor named Dr. Boyd. And I wanted to ask you, did you have any other subsequent experiences after that or any experiences prior to that that kind of were similar? I mean, as far as prior to that, it was just, I, I would, I would equate prior to that. It was just me because I was, I wasn't a serious student. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was navigating my way through college alone. So the, the, the grades I received as an undergraduate at an HBCU were grades that I absolutely earned because I didn't do anything. I figured because I'm an athlete, I can make this happen, and I'm just going to keep playing basketball, and nobody's going to you know nobody's going to say anything. So I, I equate all of that just just to me and my ignorance, and I just didn't know what I was doing. When I got to UTSA, and I was a I was a serious student, I knew exactly what I was doing. I'm I'm studying, I'm doing all these things, and to have a professor tell me what he told me, I knew was wrong. I'm like, no, this this is not right. But again, those are some of the things that that I keep with me and propel me as as I became an educator because I'm you can never judge a student. You can, I don't care if the student is, is 12 years old and you think this is the worst student in the world. These children grow up. They're going to grow up, and all we're, we can do is nurture them. And we discipline and guide them, but we, cannot, we can never judge them as if their behavior is the final, this is the final outcome. There's going to be another day, and we have to really believe in all of them. I mean, and funny, funny, like no child left behind. I, I really I look at that statement. And no child left behind, and I really believe in no child left behind. We really have to believe that. If it, you know, if it wasn't, weren't for no child, and we got off the subject a little bit, but you know, if it weren't for no child left behind, mm-hmm. school district would still not be counting African American grades because before no child left behind, you could basically count who you wanted to count as far as accountability is concerned. Really? No child left behind. No, no child left behind came and changed that. That's when school districts were forced to count all of your students, your African Americans. Your special ed, your your eco, your economic, because if you got it now, you have to count them. That's what No Child Left. So people want to complain about whatever. I'm like, yeah, but No Child Left Behind actually gave us some sight. Now, now principals had to look at all their kids and not just the smart ones. That's what that No is, Child Left Behind did. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating that you're saying that. I did not know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you got to count everybody. So now you you're looking at those those African American kids in your campus going, God, Lord, they're gonna they're going to affect my accountability rating. Yeah, that means you have to start teaching them. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the things that yeah, that's one of the things that No Child Left Behind did made you teach everybody. That's why I got I, a quick question no for you. Mm-hmm. I have a you heard about that uh, that uh, situation in Atlanta where they're trying to bring a RICO charges against that was it the school district? For padding yeah, grades or whatever, did you hear about oh, yeah. that? I heard about that. I heard about that. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's, it's the accountability system that we live in. I mean, people are principals are really under a tremendous amount of pressure to raise state assessment results, and everything goes along with that graduation rates. I mean, they're doing all kinds of things. You hear? I don't know if you heard about the situation up in El Paso, Texas, where the superintendent actually went to prison. He's in prison right now. Uh, really? Lots of principals got fired. Yeah, because they were doing. And they were doing things like, you know, El Paso is right there on the Mexico, uh, U.S.-Mexico border. They were doing things like, uh, from, what, from what I read, they were sending their, their, their Hispanic students who lived in Mexico, they were not letting them enroll in U.S. schools, sending them to Mexico. They were doing all kinds of things so their accountability ratings can go up. No different than what they're doing in Atlanta. Uh, you heard about the superintendent in Atlanta who's under indictment right now for that very thing, for cheating on test scores. Uh, Atlanta Public Schools was um, was accused of, Having erase erasure parties, where erasure parties, of, yeah, man, they would uh, at the end of the when, when students finished taking their state assessments, the teachers mm-hmm. would just take all the test books home and erase. This is alleged erase answers and put the correct answer. That's what they would. And so Atlanta public oh schools, they're, they're, oh man, test scores went way up. And a uh, matter of fact, that Atlanta, that print, that superintendent was was given an award, a superintendent of the year, because the the, the test scores were up so high. We'll come to find out they were now they're being uh, accused of cheating and they're being investigated and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of a lot of pressure to uh, for accountability, and that's why I was so proud of my staff when I was a campus principal. Our scores went up, man. We we went up one year like 45, 50 points in, in writing, for example. Like all of our black kids passed. I mean, so mm-hmm. and, and I know how we did it. So I'm yeah, come on, investigate me because I know exactly what we did, and our teachers know what we did. So, but that that. That accountability, uh, this accountability era that we live in, it's just it's a lot of pressure. So that's kind of one of the, I guess you can almost say one of the negative things with No Child Left Behind, but at the same time, it's forcing you to look at all your students. 
Interesting, interesting. Based on your experiences in your book, would you say that the school system needs to be reformed or you think it needs to do do you think it needs to be lightly tweaked in terms of public schools? What do you think? Man, it just needs to be tweaked. When you say public schools, it's inner city public schools. Let's get that completely clear. It's inner city public schools. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, one of the things, you know, one of the things I think inner city public schools needs, we need new buildings. We need new buildings. We need those, those, those modernized, uh, with that wireless infrastructure, we need we need new buildings in our in our neighborhoods. That's what that's what you have in the suburban communities. When you go out to one of these suburban communities and in, in whatever community you live in, the first thing the a family looks at is what do the schools look like? I mean, how are the schools? When they drive right. down the neighborhood and they see that elementary school that looks like a, a small college, they 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 love to send their children there. But if you, if you see some of the buildings in our in the city schools, that's a turnoff because the buildings are so old. You have I also are, you noticed know, 50, you, you, have a, you have an extensive background in uh, school technology, and I think you're an advocate of in, integrating technology in schools. Like, would, I, would, I think some schools, I know uh, the Texas A&M was doing this, any student that entered the university got an iPad. Would yeah, you agree? Man. You think that could be replicated in some of the uh, inner city schools? You know, give, give those kids in this. already doing yeah, is that right? Wow. Yeah, we're we're doing it here in, in our district. We uh we have a, a pilot program. We we took away, we had a I think they were freshmen uh, biology students at the high school level. We took away their physical textbook and gave them the Amazon Kindle to use, and we put their textbook on the Kindle. Uh, so of course their learning went sky high. And you know it's funny, they you know how they lose textbooks at the end of the year, and we have this uh-huh. textbook audit. Absolutely, they didn't lose not one Kindle. We they we 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 issued fifty, and we received fifty at the end of the year, and they they were always on their Kindle because that not only can they read their book, <laughs> they can surf the web, they can do all kinds of things. So they never lost it; they personalized it, and their learning, of course, went way up. I mean, they were actually able to go in, and it's a science book, so they can go look do experiments right there on their Kindle. So yeah, man. If you can afford that uh, that one to one initiative, that's great. I mean, we have fifty thousand students in our school district. It's a little difficult, but I mean, we're getting there. We're getting there uh, sections at a time. But if you have a smaller school district, one to one iPads and oh, man, that's man, that's that's great. That's a great thing if you can do it. Oh, that is awesome. And I and I know you. I know you're an advocate of this. You're not a good teacher if you can't teach a student that wants to learn. Well, how do you, what do you think about that statement? Absolutely. If a student wants to learn, half your job is done <laughs> because uh-huh. a student wants to learn. So if a student wants to learn, that means chances are his or her behavior is going to be that of I'm an active learner. Now, it's up to you as a teacher to always be a lifelong learner. Your student should not come in classroom knowing more than you, especially mm-hmm. about your subject. They haven't even lived long enough to know more than you. So that's the, and going back to your point about technology, that's, the, that's why as teachers, as educators, we, we have to be at the cutting edge of emerging technologies. We have to know what cloud-based, uh, cloud-based technologies are. We have to know how to use interactive smart boards and, and, and uh, uh, mobile devices. We have to know how to use those things to the point where we can teach them in the classroom. And if you don't know it as a teacher, in today's, in today's, uh, with today's students, you're going to struggle a little bit. I have a thing that I do, uh, uh, hip-hop, in, uh, in the classroom. I have a presentation that I, use, that I, that I teach using how to, how to use hip-hop to teach uh, reading and writing. And I use really? I use different technologies. Oh yeah, man! I mean, it's great. And I use I'm not talking about I create a rhyme over uh, uh, science concepts. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I use today's music, Jay Z, Eminem, and and uh, Tribe Called Quest, Common. I use their music they, that they put out right now and show them how that music can be used in the classroom. And I give them I give them samples. Like, listen, listen to listen to Eminem right here. Listen to what he's saying. Isn't that an alliteration? Isn't that uh, a homophone? Yada yada. And that's, and that's what I do with my staff development. That is remarkable. How did you come up with that idea to do that? You must have been talking to Dr. Kelly, huh? <laughs> well, actually, I got that. I'm Dr. Ron Kelly from Confident Enterprises. Yeah, actually. You got to get him on the show, definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, he came to my campus, and he did, a, he did his version of it. And, it was, and his is more motivational. Like, it was a lot of fun. And uh-huh. I know with mine, I said, okay, I, well, I can't do the same thing Dr. Kelly does. I got to have a little different. You know, so uh-huh. mine, is more, mine is more, I take the student expectations, what the students are supposed to learn, so say the state of Texas. I take those student expectations, and I just listen. I'm listening to music all the time. My DJ is a, he's a, I have an actual DJ that rolls with me. He's an actual, I mean, that, this guy, that's all he does is music. Uh, so we always have these conversations. I say, hey, man, did you hear this song by Jay-Z? And he's like, no, nah, I heard it. So we'll listen to it. I say, you know that that's a, that's a concept in the student expectation? 
So I just take that music, go in, go in front of a classroom or go to teachers and say, hey, you know, this and this is what the kids listen to. Now you need to show them how this music relates to what they're supposed to be learning in the classroom. I I'm totally not get that. We have a lot of dinosaurs that are still teaching, trying to write notes on a blackboard. They don't. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen teachers that didn't know how to use Microsoft Word, Excel, mm-hmm. like they can compute their grades and be done with them. Right. And and uh, I don't know. Is that something that we definitely need to look at? Is how computer literate some of the uh, teachers are? Because some of them, like you said. They just a paycheck to them, and they're just showing up. They're not. They're not a uh, technology literate or computer literate. And you and, know, nowadays, in their contract says that they have to have. They have to be computer literate now, and their and their contract right? says that. Mm-hmm. But you, but you're right though. Those basic concepts like Microsoft Word, and honestly, we don't even. The teachers don't have to compute their grades anymore. We have gradebook programs that do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, all the teachers have to do is enter the enter the name of the assignment and enter the enter the student grade, and the and the system does the rest. So we've taken all that that burden away from teachers, but you know they have to know how to use and Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, Excel. Those are basic, basic programs they should be using. I'm talking about you need to come in and know how to use the Promethean board and know how to uh-huh. use an, inter- an interact- interactive whiteboard. Know how to know how to hook up a, a projector and those kinds of things. Digital cameras and man, this this goes on and on. Well, you're like you're right on the frontier of uh you know higher learning and and not definitely definitely. Have been impressed with some of the work that you've done. I uh, do you anticipate another book or a follow up book to Inner City Schools still work? As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm working on it now. It's more it's, it's along the lines of you know uh, Stephen Covey passed away recently. He has the seven uh, seven habits of highly effective people. I want to do something of those habits, those effective habits of of of, of okay. inner city educators because I know the ones that I've talked to. There's always a common theme in what they mm-hmm. all do to be successful. And I want to I want to see if I can go and find out what those strategies are that all of them use to be successful in the midst of failing schools, shrinking budgets and dilapidated buildings, they're still successful. What is it that uh, what is it that they're doing? And that's what I'm working on now. All righty, that is totally awesome. Goodness, that's our show for today and I want to thank uh Dr. Martin Diop and uh for being on our show and discussing his book Inner City Public Schools Still Work and uh I want to thank you, Dr. Deer, for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Miles. Appreciate it, man. Anytime. Just give me a call. Thank you so much. Well, here's our quote for the week. I think, Dr. Deer, you'll love this one. (laughs) I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something. But I can accept not trying. Michael Jordan. (laughs) All righty. Well, I'm out of here. Thank you so much for joining Game on Business Talk. I'm DeAnthony Miles, and we will see you next week. Have a good week. Take care. Thank you again for listening to Game on Business Talk Radio. Please join your host, Dr. DeAnthony Miles, again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll engage in more unique and exciting discussion topics then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.